0: Father God, I pray that you would open up our ears to hear this evening to what you have to say to us through your word. Lord, please don't let us fall into the trap of of guilt and self-pity, but Lord, help us to see that being generous uh, is something we are called to be with joy. Uh, Lord, I pray that as we unpack your scriptures this evening, it will be something that we see fair and square. We pray this through Jesus, our Lord and Saviour. Amen. What is the good life? What is the good life? Uh, This is a question that has plagued humanity uh, and philosophers and many great thinkers uh, pretty much as long as we've existed on earth. Uh, Thankfully, though, uh, we don't need philosophers and smart people to tell us what the good life is. And the reason is because if you want to know what the good life is, all you need to do is reach into your pocket, grab out your phone... Browse YouTube or Instagram or whatever for five minutes, check out all the ads that they're targeting you with, and you will know exactly what the good life is for you. You'll be bombarded with countless ads tailored to you that tell you what you need to live the good life. It's pretty awesome, right? It's kind of scary, actually, when you think about it. Now, I have a vivid memory uh, back in the Stone Age of really wanting an iPhone 4. This is an old, old iPhone. But I desperately wanted this. I I saw this ad for an iPhone 4 on my phone, and I was just like, this is the bee's knees. Like, every cool person that has ever existed is going to have one of these. They're going to be somebody. They're going to be stylish. I need that iPhone 4. My heart screamed. It said, I need that right now. I want that phone so badly. And I kid you not, when when I blinked a few times and my eyes refocused, and the the bright light of the screen kind of dimmed a bit, uh, I realized that in my hand was the very thing that I was seeing an ad for right there. I had an iPhone 4 in my hands looking at an ad for an iPhone 4. And it just boggled my mind. I thought, what on earth is happening? So I sat there and I had to self-reflect and say, what's going on inside of my head? The very same phone I wanted was the one in my hands. And yet at the same time, I didn't want this one. I wanted the one in the ad. I wanted that iPhone. But that's the power of advertising. It's so potent, it's so powerful at convincing you that you need something to live in comfort, that even the very thing you own won't satisfy you enough. Ads convince you that you need comfort, they convince you that you need indulgence. They convince you that you need this or that thing over there to feel secure, or maybe to boost your status among peers in general society. And we're so surrounded by this stuff, we don't often realize, like it was for me uh, with the iPhone, we don't realize how much of an effect it has on the way that we actually think about the world and those around us. There's a very real sense in which these ads, uh, to use a Christian term, they're discipling us, right? They're convincing us to open our wallets and open up everything we have time and time again to justify, well, why we need it. And when we're bombarded with this stuff and, and all of our pennies begin to run dry, we begin to justify, well, why we can't be generous because we you know, we, we don't have enough money in the bank account anymore. We don't have this or that. We're always good at justifying why we can spend money on the things we want to buy, but not on the things not we don't want to, not so much. Now I want to say I think we're always being discipled uh, by something or someone, whether we like it or not. And the real question then is, Who or what is discipling you? Who or what is trying to sell you their version of the good life? Now, the reason I bring all this up is because, uh, statistically speaking, uh, according to one of the books I read this week by a guy called Rod Irvine, who's an evangelical Anglican, uh, he wrote a book called Giving Generously, and this was published in 2015, and he said, statistically speaking, the average Australian Christian gives away roughly 3% of their income. Now, if you know the the Old Testament idea of tithing, the whole ten percent. I'm not saying we're aiming for tithing necessarily. We'll come back to that though. But the Old Testament kind of regulation was ten percent. And here's Rod saying the average Aussie gives away three percent of their income, less than a third of that. Now, don't hear me wrong. I'm not here to chastise people for their giving. Uh, I simply raise this statistic because it demonstrates the reality of everything I've mentioned so far. The fact that we are so amazing at spending money on ourselves, at being generous towards ourselves, while at the same time leaving crumbs and whatever is left at the end of all other expenses for things like gospel ministry. And... I want to say I don't blame you or any of the Aussies that make up this statistic, because the good life, according to your phones and the ads in the West, is the life where you are at the centre of everything that really matters. And so you are told that your time and your money and your energy uh, so often need to be spent on you to be happy. And in many ways, this is the battle of the human heart as long as we've walked this earth. And God does know this. You see, when it comes to the topic of uh, generosity and and things like money and possessions, uh, God knows this so well that, believe it or not, the Bible, uh, the one that you have in front of you, has a lot to say about this. And by a lot, I mean a lot, lot. So let me break this down for you, give you a couple of statistics to see what I'm talking about here. Uh, The Bible, the one that you have open in front of you, it contains over 500 verses on prayer and the importance of prayer, it has about the same number of verses, about 500 or so, on the topic of faith. Do you want to have a guess at how many verses deal with the issue of money and possessions? Well, to put it in perspective, if you were to grab all the passages that dealt with faith, all the passages that dealt with prayer, smash them together, you would have about half the amount that there is on the topic of money and possessions. There's roughly 2,000 verses that deal with this issue. Let me break it down even further for you. If you were to grab uh, Jesus' preaching plan, his parables, uh, 16 out of the 38 of them deal with the issue of money and possessions. Almost 25% of all of his teaching addresses what we would call biblical stewardship. That is how we look after the stuff that God has graciously given us. 25% of his teachings. In other words, the Bible, it has a lot to say on the issue of what we do with our stuff. So much so that if if I were to take a leaf out of Jesus' preaching plan, you would hear a sermon every four weeks on giving, probably, thereabouts. And I'm sure you'd all love me for that. Now, one of the reasons we don't do this, and one of the reasons I don't uh, preach about money all the time, uh, is because the church, in many ways, has actually messed up big time on this topic. Uh, we've proven ourselves to be untrustworthy in the eyes of the public and even in the eyes of fellow believers. Uh, as things like TV evangelists, uh, they historically have tried to squeeze all these extra dollars out of you in exchange for, for a blessed handkerchief or, or something like that, trying to coerce you into you know, planting a seed for the gospel. You know, in other words, get your credit card out and call the number on the screen. <laughs> There's a very real sense in in which the love of money doesn't just corrupt people, it corrupts Christians too. And the church in general isn't immune to this kind of attitude. In fact, even here at Kenmore, we are far from immune to this, which is one of the reasons that, that neither Steve nor I nor just about anyone has access to the church bank account. As far as I'm aware, there are two people in the whole congregation and even when they access, they don't want to know who's been giving what and all that kind of stuff. It's more just so that we know, generally speaking, what's happening with the giving. We don't want to know if you've been slack or generous with your giving. We don't want to know who's been giving what. Otherwise, that'll affect the way that we, we interact with people. We'd prioritize some and not others in, in the hopes of favor and things like that. The human heart is just so corrupt, this is the type of thing that could happen. So we don't want to know. We also don't pass the plate around, apart from the fact that very few people carry cash. There's also the COVID response and all that kind of stuff that goes down with it. But by not passing the plate, it also helps with this because it adds to the anonymity of your giving. It helps the left hand not know what the right hand is doing. Yet at the same time, we can't avoid the fact that the Bible is saturated with teachings on money and possessions, including Jesus' own ministry. So from time to time, I think it does pay to look at this and to think about this topic. Well, not only to think about it, but to let our guard down just a little bit and listen carefully to what it has to say. Because if you're listening carefully, you might be in for a big surprise because ultimately, believe it or not, the Bible is far less concerned with how much or how little you give. Rather, it's what your giving says about your heart. To put it another way, God is far more concerned not with your money. In fact, he makes it crystal clear that, that the earth is his and everything in it. It's the, the opening of Psalm 24 here. right? God already owns everything. He owns every penny that's in your bank account, every investment you've ever made. There's nothing that you own that doesn't already belong to God or that he's graciously given you to look after. And so I think it's fair to say that God is less concerned with how much or little you have of your own money, rather he's more concerned with your heart and what your generosity or lack thereof says about what's going on in here. In other words, I'm not here to tell you that KPC's budget needs a good injection in order to guilt or manipulate you into giving this evening. Uh, In fact, to make this point clear as day, uh, I'd like to hope that if you picture this scenario, right? KPC, amazing megachurch, rolling in the dosh. Student ministers all have Maseratis, or it's bad, bad example. They'll be driving around in a Camry or something like that. But we have all the money in the world, right? Millions and millions in our bank account. We have a state-of-the-art building. We have many flourishing ministries, people coming to Jesus left, right, and center. We have no worries about money, no worries about receivership or the capital fund and everything that goes with that. Even if we were like that, we had everything we'd ever needed, If we had decided never to do a talk on gospel generosity, then we would be robbing you of the opportunity to experience significant spiritual growth in all your own lives. You see, regardless of the bottom line of the church, the purpose of this talk, I would hope, would remain the same. Because when it comes to the topic of giving and generosity, God is primarily concerned about the heart. Now, we have had a few call-outs over the years uh, for financial support. Uh, I mean, we have half the student ministers in Queensland uh, living here at the moment. Uh, If you have your outline, I don't have one with me here, but you see in the notices in the top, uh, we've included details of how you can support Andreas, who's working with us through AFES. He's essentially volunteering for KPC. So we do ask for your support, but it's never to force your hand begrudgingly or out of guilt. In fact, that's the last thing we want. Uh, if we pull up the famous uh, giving passage in 2 Corinthians 9, um, you'll probably recognize this one. It says, Each of you should give what you've decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly and under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Now, this word cheerful here, which uh, is a tidbit of information, uh, the modern word hilarious kind of stems from that. You can't apply the word hilarious back to this word here, but the word in its root kind of means full of cheer, right, full of happiness. And I can't remember the last time I ever kind of clicked submit to a payment, and I was like, ha, 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 I'm so happy about that. It just feels so contrary to everything we are told. But when you read something like this, then it does make you stop and think. When was the last time you're giving generated a deep joy in your heart. Now, having said this, Paul he does make it very clear that you're giving is not to be reluctant, it's not to be under compulsion. And so the catch cry we use, I stole this from our website here, but it's the one that we generally use to describe the way we would like giving here, is to be considered, consistent and generous in financially giving to the church and other gospel ministries. The first one, if you're considered, I would have hoped that before you gave, you would have thought and prayed things through. In fact, I would argue if you're a regular giver and you've kind of set and forgotten, uh, perhaps at the beginning of each year, have a rethink through what you're giving and why and pray over it. It's a helpful exercise to get the heart in check. If you're married, I would hope that you'd also have spoken with your spouse before you give, not just on the fly, not just willy-nilly, We're not looking for you, in other words, to to kind of set up the amount and then kind of close your eyes at a distance, kind of click the enter button and go, oh, there it goes kind of thing. I don't think that's a helpful way to think about it because the set and forget, while it can be helpful for consistency and the other parts of that, I don't think it helps with the considered part. So I think a yearly um, assessment of what we give can be helpful, not because we need the money or anything, but because your heart needs to know what's going on. Essentially, it's a check-in with your own heart. And I think as a Christian, that can be very, very helpful. Uh, Jesus, he highlights the importance uh, as well of things like this when he says this. Uh, another famous one, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Jesus is saying when we give or whatever we give to, we need to check in with our hearts. In essence, what this is saying is where your money most easily flows to. You know, you you show me where your money easily flows to, and I'll show you what you really value in life. Show me where the money leads, and I'll be able to tell you the things that you really care about. How much money is going towards things that, for example, pacify and comfort? How much money do we spend on things that, that keep us in a state of protection from the realities of the world? If you have a family, how much money are you unloading to kind of keep your kids' lives happy? How many extracurricular things are you kind of pumping down the line? How much money are you spending on coffee? Oof, it's a bit of an awkward one. That one. The other stuff was personal, but now now you've made it really personal. Now, don't get get me wrong, right? Coffee is amazing. I think it is a gift from heaven. In fact, I think the coffee plant, there's no evidence for this, by the way, but I do think if you had archaeological digs around the side of Eden, you'd probably find the coffee plant predates the fall. But how much money are you spending on coffee? When you're constantly poor, are you buying two, three coffees a day, five bucks a pop? Now, a lot of the things that, that I have mentioned here, they are good things. It is good to have leisure time. Don't hear me saying any of these things are wrong in and of themselves, especially with with hobbies and things like that, but if you sat down and did a once-over of your expenses and mapped out where your money most easily flows to, if you mapped out where your time, let's get money off the table for a minute, mapped out where your time is spent, then Jesus says, well, that's where your treasure really is. That's what will be revealed. Where your time and your money is spent, that's where your heart will be also uh, Martin Luther, he had a similar quote to uh, the one that Jesus gave. He said uh, that there are three conversions necessary. The conversion of the heart, the conversion of the mind, and the conversion of the wallet. Now, again, he's not preaching that you have to fork out to give to be saved or anything ridiculous like that. But he says this because he knows, just as Jesus taught, that where your treasure is, well, that's what reveals where your heart and your mind are at, right? It speaks back into the other two conversions, so to speak. Now, again, we're not asking you to cough up for the plate bigger this week or over the next couple of weeks just because you feel guilty and then eventually kind of pare back. We're not going to have a guard at the door that kind of shakes you down listening for the chinklings as you enter in. Rather, I say these things because ultimately this reflects a concern for your personal godliness and maturity, like these things go hand in hand. In fact, this is why I'm not, I'm not overly concerned with how much you give to KPC specifically, because it's not about us even as a church necessarily. So we're all too happy for you to give to people like Andreas, for example, to give to other parachurch ministries like UQES or even sponsor a child, you know, whatever floats your boat, because the key in the Bible is gospel generosity. And so as we think about this, uh, I want to spend the rest of our time uh, this evening looking at just a couple of biblical principles that will help guide us uh, in our thinking when it comes to all of this stuff, uh, when it comes to gospel generosity. So the first one, if you have your outlines there, uh, is we're called to gospel generosity because God has already given us the prime example of this in himself. Our God is the source of gospel generosity. A perfect example of this Uh, comes from 1 Chronicles, uh, chapter 29. We're really jumping all over the Bible here, but I think this is important, and this is one of my favorite chapters in the whole of the Bible. Uh, In here, for context, King David, right, he has asked for help in building the temple, right? So they've come into the promised land. Up until this point, the temple has been this flimsy tent thing that they've been using, and now they're finally in the land, and they're going, let's build a permanent home for God. And in 2 Samuel 7, God says, well, you're not going to do that. Your son is going to do that, Solomon. And so in here... He's gathered up all the resources that he can to build this temple, to give Solomon this this amazing kickstart in this project. But the interesting thing in this chapter is that David gives generously himself for the project. Yes, he's king, he owns a lot of stuff, but he doesn't just give from the king's resources. If you read in verse 3, he says he gave from his own personal savings. Beside in my devotion to the temple of my God, I now give my personal treasures of gold and silver for the temple of my God, over and above everything I've provided for this holy temple. This is one of the ones that speaks to to me. Anyone in gospel ministry, it might seem strange to, to give to the hand that kind of feeds you, but we are called as well as leaders in the church to be generous. It doesn't make any sense for us not to be giving. Now, David, uh, after he says this about the project, he also talks about the people in verse 6. He talks about how they all willingly gave to this project as well. And at the end of it all, David does something really kind of strange and remarkable. He dedicates all this stuff to God and he talks about all the generous people who've given from their own pockets. But then he stops and he thanks God for who really gave for this project. He says this, but who am I and who are my people that we should be able to give as generously as this? Everything comes from you. And we have only give, given you only what comes from your hand. He is the source of all of this. We are foreigners and strangers in your sight, as were all our ancestors. Our days on earth are like a shadow. It's here today, gone the next morning, without hope. Lord our God, all this abundance that we have provided for building you a temple for your holy name, here's the clincher, all this abundance comes from your hand and all of it belongs to you. I think one of the reasons so often we find it difficult to be generous is because deep down, while we know the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, while we know he is the one that, that so generously provides towards us, we still deep down manage to convince ourselves that, that none of the stuff we have belongs to him. That really, it is ours to do whatever we want to do with. I mean, we, we worked hard. We made it happen, right? We pulled ourselves up by the bootstraps. We made the wise decisions to have the money that we have and in essence undermine what the Bible says about everything we have. Passages like 1 Chronicles 29, Psalm 24, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. Uh, James 1.17 says something similar. He says, every good and perfect gift is from above coming down from the Father. Right? He is the source of every good thing. And there's many, many, many other scriptures that reflect this sentiment. But the ultimate example of being gifted everything we have and everything we are really is seen as we look to Jesus. As we consider God's role in gospel generosity as we see the ultimate example of Jesus himself in the second letter to the Corinthians. So I'll pull that one up here as well. This is 2 Corinthians 8. He says, "For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that although though he was rich, yet for your sake became poor so that through his poverty so that you through his poverty might become rich." Now, Paul's not talking about money here. We don't want to make the mistake of thinking that's what he's doing. He's he's using a metaphor, a monetary kind of metaphor, to talk about Jesus' richness in terms of his glory in heaven. And if we consider that's what he's talking about, then Jesus was incalculably rich, far richer than you can possibly imagine. And yet he became poor. He emptied himself. He put himself into action abject poverty by comparison with his position in coming into this world. But more than that is he willingly performed the most gracious act of generosity that will ever be seen in history. As the world witnessed the only rich man, the only righteous man, submitting himself to our punishment for sin. The punishment that that was reserved for us the hellfire that was reserved for us. And Jesus left his throne in heaven, made himself a man and said, I'm going to do this. He became poor so that in our poverty we might become rich. Here in Second Corinthians, Paul saw Jesus as the example of gospel generosity. The son of God who showed an eagerness to become poor, to lower himself, for the sake of the Father's will, and for your sake when you were stuck in your sin. But what's really amazing about this is, yes, this is uh, only a metaphor, but the context of Corinthians, the very next chapter, he actually talks about giving financially, right? He uses this example to spur the Corinthians on to gospel generosity financially, to spur them into genuine, generous, and joyous giving, So if we're to be godly with our money and possession, and when I say godly, I don't mean we are going to become God ourselves or anything like that. When, when we use the term godly in the church, what we mean is, is we take on board some characteristics of God. You know, where God is love, God is good, we actually want to be these things. Well, our God is generous. He is immeasurably generous. And if we are to be godly, to take on board, to, to mimic some of these attributes then dare I say generosity is not an optional extra in the Christian life. But I think if we understand the gospel, if we get what's going on here in in 2 Corinthians, then even if you have found it hard to be generous in life up until this point, I think if you understand the gospel, meditate on it, reflect on it, pray over it, then I guarantee it won't be too difficult in the near future. i put in your outline the, the words 1 Timothy 4, 7. this idea of training ourselves to be godly. See, God is the source of gospel generosity. And if we're to be like God, we are to be a source of gospel generosity too. Now, later in the same letter, uh, 1 Timothy chapter 6, uh, Zach actually read this for us this evening. This is one of the ones we heard. Paul writes these uh, sobering words about how we handle money. This is how we're going to land the plane uh, this evening. He begins this. He says, Command those who are rich in this present world. I'm not going to justify who he's talking to except to say that's all of us in this room. Command those who are rich not to be arrogant nor put their hope in wealth. It's a hard one. We're not to put our hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but command them to put their hope in God who richly provides us with everything, and not just everything, get this, with everything for our enjoyment. Did you ever know that? That the Bible actually calls us to enjoy things. calls us to enjoy God. It's amazing. God richly supplies everything for our enjoyment. But he keeps going. He says, command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way they will lay out treasures for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age, so that they may take hold of life that is truly life. If you want to enjoy life, if you want life that is truly life, then gospel generosity is something that is worth seriously considering. If I go back to the beginning, what, what is the good life? Is the good life stuff? Is it our money? Is it having the latest iPhone? Is, is it comfort, you know, shielding ourselves from the uncomfortable nature of the outside world? Is, is it indulgence? Is it freedom to do whatever you want whenever you want it? Is it a focus on me and what I really desperately want to do? What is the good life? Perhaps a, a better way to phrase the question is to use words from 1 Timothy 6, what is life that is truly life? And the answer is to take hold of Jesus' generosity at the cross, to mimic his generosity with our stuff, to check in with your heart, to be rich in godliness and in the way that we enjoy God, to lay a firm foundation for the coming age, to take hold of life that is truly life. Life that is truly life is a life that enjoys Jesus, forever. So as we consider what it means for gospel generosity, I think there's plenty there to chew on. I want to encourage you after the service as we go to dinner or if you hang around to to mull some of this stuff over, Uh, maybe talk with a spouse if you're married and giving together. Consider what life is that is truly life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, in your great mercy, you have blessed us with all that we need to take hold of life that is truly life. Help us to see the grace of our Lord Jesus, who though he was rich, yet for our sake became poor. And help us to consider your amazing generosity towards us in the gospel. And may this spur us into joyous and generous and consistent giving with the things you have given us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.